0: Well, good morning again. If, uh, if you need to on that wasp, use your sword. Go ahead. We'll, we'll allow it. <laughs> no, uh, Hopefully everything will be all right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer, because um, uh, just my order of, of way I'm going to preach this is going to be a little different. So I'm going to go ahead and just open us up in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll get to what God has for us. Father God, I just ask, as we come into this Christmas season that's going to come on us so quickly with all the the traffic, the commercials, the um, ads in the newspaper, just, God, that you would give us a new heart for the true meaning of Christmas. God, would you turn our hearts from the trinkets that we might want or feel that we need and place our hearts and our eyes and our hope on the treasure that we have in Jesus, the true gift of Christmas. And God, would you use us as we, we, our hearts are turned towards you, turned towards the gift of your Son, to reach out to others who, who may be more open to the gospel, more open to these types of conversations because of uh, just the very nature of Christmas. God, use us. Give us boldness. But God, I know that we need to see the gifts that we've been given before we can pass them on to others. So God, would you do that in our hearts today as we study your word in your son's name? Amen. So we're going to be doing a Christmas series for the next five weeks. The, the series is called Unwrapping Christmas Gifts. And again, that's the idea of seeing the gifts God has given us and, and unwrapping those from his word, unpacking them, you know, you could say. And so today we'll be looking at the gift of promise, then we'll look at the gift of provision, that'll be the next week, then prophecy, then preparation, then presence. These are all the different gifts God has given us. So that'll be five weeks. Then this will all culminate in the Christmas Eve candlelight service, which will be called the greatest gift. And we'll look at kind of all of those gifts and the ways that God has given uh, Jesus to us. And as we, we get into this today, I want us to think for a minute, where did this first Christmas come from? Uh, I'm not talking about the traditions, like who first decided that it should be December 25th, because that, by the way, did not happen for quite a while. Um, who, who decide, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about where did this first event that we now celebrate, namely the Son of God taking on flesh, you know, um, in, in a manger from the Virgin Mary, where did that come from? Did people see that coming? (laughs) You know, was it just all of a sudden, you know, people are doing their everyday thing and then boom, the Son of God takes on flesh. You know, Emmanuel, God with us out of nowhere. Or were there roots there? Were they possibly braced for what was going to come on them? And that's what I want to show you today is that this first Christmas, the, the, the birth of Jesus, was actually the fulfillment of a promise that was given to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And and a lot of times we might not really realize that that the stream through all of Scripture started right there with our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so we know that, that from Adam and Eve through the rest of human history until Jesus came and even now that this gift of promise, this promise of a Savior was actually one of the greatest gifts that could ever be received. Now I want you to hear me correctly there. Jesus is by far the greatest gift we could ever receive. But what I'm telling you is that even the promise of a Savior, the promise itself, is one of the greatest gifts humanity ever received. It changed everything from the day sin happened, and we'll get into all that, it changed everything up until Jesus came, and then even till today, this gift of promise. And you might say, well, how could promise change so much? How could promise change so much? I don't know if you realize how much of your everyday life is completely lived on promise. If you, I probably have a couple bucks in my wallet. I'm not going to pull one out. Have you thought about what money is? It's a piece of paper, right? A a funny feeling piece of paper. It's probably got some fabric in there. I don't really know. You know, it's a piece of paper. What, what, what do you do with that? Yet you can have a $100 bill and you feel like you got something, right? You go to the store and you feel like you can purchase something. It's a, a promissory note is actually what they're, they're known as. It's a promise. There was a day, I don't think you can do this anymore, that you could take your money to, um, <laughs> I can't even remember where now, but you could exchange it for gold and silver for things that were actual. And it was a promissory note. So think about that. Every time you have money in your wallet and you think, okay, I can get some food you're living on promise. Every time you go to work, think about this, every time you go to work, you're living on promise. If I come, punch my card, punch out when I leave, I will get paid. We do this with school. I know I did. I didn't go to school to get nothing. I said, okay, if I do my time, I get my grades, I will receive a diploma, you know, I was living on promise. And again, you go into a store, you expect that, that you will be able to receive. And we, we just, we live in these ways based on promise. And you could go uh, really far with that. But I just want you to realize that. That your actions, uh, unconsciously, subconsciously, whatever, flow out of these promises. The, the faith you put in these promises. But I want to show you that obviously, some promises are more important than others. <laughs> Some promises change the way our lives go, the direction of our lives more than any other. And ones like we're going to talk about today are especially important. Because without promise, we really have no hope. If we have no promise, no no basis, we have anarchy. And there was this first promise that, that all hope would be lost without it. In fact, all hope was lost until this promise was given. So let's look at that now. We're going to uh, look at the need for promise. That's in your notes, the need for promise. And this is just a bit of a refresher. We're going to look at uh, Genesis chapter, uh, chapters 1 through 3 is where we're going to be today. And we'll just barely touch on chapters uh, 1 and 2. But the need for promise. Why, why was it that things were so hopeless at one point without this promise? Well, I think it's helpful to see first, before we see the need for promise, to see uh, where mankind came from. So obviously there was the fall. Where did they fall from? How good did Adam and Eve have it? Well, chapters uh, one and two of, of the Bible of, of Genesis are interesting. The, the first chapter talks about creation and the days, and then the second chapter kind of reiterates parts of those same days. So sometimes uh, it looks like there's almost two creation accounts. There, there's not two creation accounts. It's, it's two uh, portrayals, so we'll kind of be jumping through these a little bit. Let's look at where mankind fell from. The first talk of uh, creating humans within the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you see in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It says there, then God said, let us, that's within the Trinity, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over, and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the highest dignity and purpose imaginable. You have the God of the universe, the highest being out there, and he creates man in his own image. That means man is to, in many ways, reflect God's character, reflect God's nature, reflect God's holiness, reflect God's glory. That's what it is to make man in God's image. This is the highest dignity. Then he says, let's let them have dominion over, and then it just lists everything, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. Let let them have dominion over. We have this purpose that we're to carry on God's authority, God's rule. This is the highest dignity and purpose that mankind was created with. You think about it, even angels. We think angels, wow, these brilliant, amazing creatures. Even they don't get this dignity and purpose that humans were endowed with. It's it's amazing. The next one I want to look at is uh, Genesis 129. 129 says, skip one verse. Says there, and God said, Behold, so he created them, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. This might seem odd, but think about this. This is abundant provision from God. Hey, I have given you all these trees, all these seed you know, bearing fruits and vegetables, all of them are for your food. All you got to do is eat them. Enjoy. Knock yourself out, Adam and Eve. God abundantly provided for them. And I would say, uh, by extension, in the same way you think of the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, that's talking a lot about a lot more than just bread. It's give us our daily needs. Give us what we need, the provision we need. So Adam and Eve had this abundant provision. Everything they could ever need. They would not have any kind of want. And where did this happen? Go to uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. This is where all this was taking place. It says there, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So what's the setting here? God plants this garden in this land called Eden. Now this I'm going to say, and I I just want to be straight up, is it's somewhat debated what I'm about to tell you, but It works for me, so I'm going to roll with it. The word Eden (laughs) means literally pleasure. The word Eden literally means pleasure in the Hebrew. Again, it's somewhat debated. Some people say it means pasture. It's like, eh, I like pleasure better. But uh, (laughs) I don't know we don't have that type of liberty. But again, this is, it makes a lot of sense that God would make this perfect creation with perfect provision, with this dignity and purpose, put his people there, and put them in the purpose perfect setting known as pleasure. He makes this land for them called Eden or pleasure. This is where they're at. And then man and woman are created. God brings them together. They're married. And then we see in Genesis uh, 2.25, the last verse of chapter 2, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, we might giggle at that. Aha, uh-huh, they were naked. Yeah, this is, I mean, it is talking about that they were physically naked, but this is talking about so much more than, than their physical nudity. It is talking about that they were able to be transparent and unashamed. They had no, nothing to hide, no skeletons in their closet, nothing that would bring them shame. They had no fear of each other, husband and wife, and no fear of God. They had no reason to be ashamed. And so they could commune with God perfectly in this perfect land called Eden with this perfect provision, with the highest dignity and purpose. This is where Adam and Eve were. And they were given one prohibition, one you shall not. You can do all this. You can have this dominion over all these things. You can eat of all these things. You can, you can do whatever. Go, go down the, the rivers. It doesn't matter. Just do what you want. But don't do this, this one thing. Genesis two sixteen and 17, middle of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You can do all these things. You can eat of all these other plants, but this one tree... Don't eat of it, for in the day that you do, you will surely die. So again, everything's perfect. They're in this place, one little rule. They've got the highest dignity purpose, this perfect provision, a perfect setting with perfect relationships, but then the worst thing ever. Literally, the worst event in human history happens in chapter 3. I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 3 for us. And I, I really just want this to, to sink in on you a little bit of, you know, we read through this, okay? They send, guys, this is where everything bad comes from, okay? What I'm about to read is why you, your, your joints ache. What I'm about to read is why hurricanes and tsunamis take out whole areas. What I'm about to read is why you sometimes have strife in your marriage and between co-workers. That is what we're about to read. And what we're about to read is why it is so hard to have a relationship with the God who created us. So here we go. Chapter 3. I'm going to read all the way through it. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, that's Satan, by the way, the serpent. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, And that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord, Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you oh sorry, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said because you have listened to the voice of your wife And have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and, and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord, Lord God sent them out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he w- was taken. He drove out the man, and at the, and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The worst event in human history right there in Genesis chapter 3. So we saw that they, they started out with the highest dignity, the highest purpose, this reflecting God made in his image, and now they have lost this reflecting ability of his holiness. Now, some of that remains in us. We still are made in the image of God, absolutely. But, but there, there's this measure that, that is clouded, that we no longer reflect who God really is, his character, his holiness, because of sin. Our, our spiritual life, spiritual communion with God was taken away. How about their abundant provision? Remember, they could just go out and eat. Everything was supplied for them. It said to, to Adam, uh, In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles the, the ground shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. All of a sudden, work becomes laborious. It becomes difficult. Can I get an amen, guys? <laughs> work became hard right here because of this sin. No longer just this abundant provision, go out, take care of the fields, and just eat away. Thorns and thistles it will produce. By sweat of your face you'll eat. What about the perfect setting? Remember, they were, they were in Eden, the, this place called pleasure. They were cast out. And the, the, the entryway was blocked by, by a cherubim with a flaming sword, blocking the way to the tree of life. And what about these perfect relationships Adam started out by saying, surely this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. (laughs) And now he's saying, that woman who you gave me, she's the one who had me eat the fruit. These relationships were torn up. And even you look at God, their relationship with God. He says, you can no longer stay in this place, Eden, where we were communing in perfection. You're cast out. These relationships are broken. And one day, of course... They would physically die and face judgment. I would say that they already spiritually died in that moment. The spiritual life being this connection with God, they spiritually died, and now they would one day physically die and face judgment. Again, everything bad is a result of this. The curse was put on the earth, it was put on man, it was put on woman, it was put even on the serpent there. So what what could possibly come from that? The world has crumbled. The plan God had is no longer there. The, the, we've ruined it with our choices, Adam and Eve here, our, our, our heads. So how does God respond to this great rebellion in need? That's the next thing in your notes there, the compassion of promise. The compassion of promise. This is how God responds even to sinners. Before we look, at, look to God's response, I want to point out something I think may be helpful. What should Adam and Eve have done here? I mean, obviously they shouldn't have eaten of the fruit, you know. They probably should have gone ahead and crushed the snake themselves. Uh, but anyways, what should they have done after eating? I think that they should have immediately gone to God and confessed what they had done. I think that they should, uh, rather than blame shifting, oh, the, the woman who you gave me, I think you, Adam should have said, hey, I was standing right there while the serpent, an animal, was trying to tempt my wife. You, you gave me this command. I knew what the command was, but I stood there idly by and let my wife fall into sin. And then I, I took it from her. After she ate, I, I ate too. That's, that's what Adam should have said. And Eve should have said, God, I, I knew your word better. I distorted it. I shouldn't have listened to a serpent. Why would I listen to something that's that's beneath me? I was supposed to have dominion over them. That's what they should have done. And they should have thrown themselves on the mercy of God. And I tell you that because that should be our response right here, right now, every day. If we confess our sins to God. We take responsibility for what we've done. We don't blame shift oh, well, I, I just really wanted that, so I, I went ahead and took it off the desk. You know, like we, we don't blame shift in these ways. We throw ourselves on the mercy of God as we take responsibility for our sins. But looking to, to God here, who did make the first constructive move here? Let's look at it again in verses uh, 7 through 9 of chapter 3. 7 through 9. This is uh, right after they sin. <clears throat> Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So first, they, they, they realize, oh no, we, we have messed up. We are, we are naked. We are, we are no longer without shame. We have brought condemnation on ourselves. So what do they do? I know. We'll cover it up. We'll just sweep this under the rug. We'll, we'll make uh, loincloths out of leaves. These, by the way, were the first uh, um, hula skirts. They, they, they should have trademarked it. They'd have made a ton of money. Anyway, th- this is what they did, though. They tried to cover up their sin before God. You ever been there? Oh, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that big of a deal, but I did. It's, it's all good. God wasn't paying attention. Really? Interesting. Well, anyway, that's what they did tried to cover up their sin. Then, when they realize God's coming, they go and hide from him. (laughs) That's a really good plan, uh, to try and hide from the God of the universe. But that's what they did. They flee from God. Rather than throwing themselves on his mercy, they run from him. They try to cover up their sins. But we see there, in verse 9, I believe, God begins to talk to them. He calls to the man, Where are you? God makes the first helpful move. Adam, let's talk about this. Something's clearly wrong. Where are you? Come on, let's talk about this. God God knew what was wrong. And what did God do? What did God do? Did did God lash out on them immediately? You know, did did he say, okay, I'm going to kill you right now. That was the promise that I made you that the day that you eat, you will surely die. I'm going to kill you and I'm going to throw you in eternal torment without hope. Is that what God did? No. No. He lovingly talks to them and draws them out. Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? Uh, I I heard that you were coming, and and so I hid because I knew I was naked. Who told you you were naked, Adam? God God comes to him with this compassion. I don't know about you, but that's uh, that's what happened in my life as well. I I would throw condemnation on myself. Ah, I'm such a bad person, and it was God who would come to me with compassion. Jeff, I, I love you. That's just an aside, but I just want to show you these parallels that are going on here. And then when Adam and Eve do confess, they say, here's what I did, this woman that you gave me. Oh, well, the serpent made me do it. You know, the devil made me do it. People have been doing that for a long time, by the way. Um, The first thing that God does is he doesn't turn to them and say, all right, here's what I'm going to do to you. He actually turns to the serpent first. He turns to the serpent first. He pronounces judgment and a curse on him. Serpent, the, the, the Satan. Let's look at that in verse uh, 14 and 15. I'll read uh, verse 14. It says there, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all, all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now this is Interesting. The more I studied this, the more, uh, the more I was perplexed until I came to some conclusions here. It sure sounds like God is not just cursing Satan, but actually cursing the animal. He says they're above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field, you're cursed. God is actually cursing serpents right here, snakes. It's a crazy thing. I'm not going to go too far into this, but I I do think it's interesting. Why would God curse snakes? I think it's uh, similar to the rainbow of Noah's story. There was this continual reminder, you know, in Noah, the the flood and kills everyone. God's like, okay, uh, here's a rainbow to show you that I'll never do this again. I think the reason that snakes were actually physically cursed, it says there, on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life, is to show this is what happens to those who go against me. God is saying, I will show you with a continual reminder, physical reminder, the serpent, what really has happened to Satan. Satan thinks he's some sort of a ruler, but he will be eating dust all the days of his life. In fact, I think uh, in the end, Satan would be happy to be eating dust He'll be in the, the lake of fire at one point. But that is why the serpent. I know some people probably have a snake in your home, but in general, people don't like them. Um, if one's coming towards my house, it better turn around because it won't make it very far. Anyway, I don't want animal people to get mad at me. But, um, <laughs> so that's enough about that. But serpents are cursed. They just think about them. They have to slither through everything gross, they're a continual reminder of this rebellion against God, and what happens. The next thing he says, verse 15, so it's kind of moving from the actual serpent and the way it uh, displays this curse. Verse 15, it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. I'm going to pause there for a moment. Enmity between you and the woman. Why is that important? So think about this. God, you know, makes the world. Satan rebels, and, and he's uh, angry at God, and, and wants to um, thwart God's good plans. He sees that God makes these humans in the image of Himself, in the image of God, and they're communing with Him. He wants to ruin that. He wants to turn Adam and Eve and put them on His side. But guess what? God says right here, between, I will put enmity between you and the woman. You thought that you had turned this loyal subject. Nope. She's going to stay with me, God's saying here. She's going to still be mine. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. You don't get her allegiance the way you think you're going to. And it even goes on to say, in between your offspring and her offspring, There'll be enmity, this battle, this war between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. So who's the offspring of Satan? That would, it would be spiritual offspring. you see in uh, Ephesians 2, the people that are following the, the sons of disobedience. Uh, you think of, uh, I think it's in John, he says, um, you're not following Abel, uh, Abraham. He's not your father. You follow your father, Satan, the, the devil. And so that's what's going on here. There, there's this offspring, this offspring spiritual offspring of satan that will be against this spiritual offspring of of the woman that the the children of promise will call them and god's saying here yeah you you did turn some there there will be some who follow you but i will save for myself a people there will be children of promise and what is that promise that's the next part of the verse he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel there's something really important that happens here in this verse. So, the, verse 14 was talking about the serpent and how it was a picture of Satan. Uh, then the beginning of verse 15 is talking about between the woman and Satan. Then it was talking about the offspring and her offspring. But all of a sudden, the, the, the titles change here. It says, he shall bruise your head. He. Singular masculine pronoun. <laughs> okay? Singular. One. One person. And it will be a man. He masculine pronoun is used here. Why, why he? Why not uh, your, your offspring uh, will, will bruise your head? There, there's a he. This is Genesis 3, guys, beginning of the Bible. There is already a he who is going to do battle, who's being promised to do battle with Satan. That's amazing. This, this, is, this is Christmas right here that's being talked about. There is a he who will come on, on onto this planet, offspring of the woman, from her seed, and it says there, you shall bruise his heel. Well, we'll kind of take this in reverse. It says, you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. Was Jesus, the seed of the woman, this, this uh, Savior who comes into the world, bruised? Absolutely. He was bruised. Uh, it makes me sad, physically sad, and, and, and my stomach hurts to think of how Jesus was bruised. I went to Israel maybe uh, five years ago, and we went to the area where they believed that Jesus was you know strapped down and, and whipped and beaten. Man, that'll do something to you right there, to think about the God of the universe who took on flesh taking that beating, that bruising for you. Isaiah 53.5 says this about Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. You, Satan, shall bruise his heel. Yes, Jesus was bruised. On the cross, Jesus was bruised and crushed by, by Satan's influence. But the story didn't end there, did it? It was not a mortal wound. Three, day, three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, showing his victory over Satan's sin and death. It wasn't a, a mortal wound. Yes, Jesus really died, but death couldn't contain him, the Bible shows us. Satan thought he was doing the ultimate damage by, by destroying the Son of God who took on flesh. But really, Jesus was accomplishing victory, because that's what we see there, the, the next part. He shall bruise your head. He shall bruise your head. So the, the blow to Jesus was, was, was painful and, and horrible, yes, but it wasn't mortal, it wasn't fatal. But this blow to Satan was the fatal blow. This, this word uh, bruised, I, look in, I looked into it a good bit. It has many meaning, meanings. Your Bible might say crushed, and it could be used either way, so I think it's more or less a play on words. You'll you'll bruise his heel, but he'll he'll crush your head. And uh, but it is the same word used both times there. But this this head blow, we we understand here, is a fatal blow. Isaiah fifty three five. I just read read for you uh, that a moment ago how Jesus was bruised. It said, but he was pierced for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities. So Satan bruised his heel. But then it goes on to say, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. (laughs) There it is. In the time when Jesus was bruised, he was also creating the victory. Now, Satan, you might say, well, he still exists right now. I thought he's supposed to be dead. Yes. Yes. Satan still exists, but I promise you that the fatal wound has already been given. Uh, we know in, in uh, chapter 20 of Revelation that one day Satan will be thrown in the lake of fire for eternity with all those who are his spiritual children. He'll be thrown in the lake of fire and that will be the, the, uh, the closing of the victory. Um, but the victory has already happened in Christ. And there was that promise right there. Genesis 3.15, you shall bruise his heel and he shall bruise your head. This he, again, this person will do this. This was the promise. Now, I'll tell you, Adam and Eve wouldn't have known exactly what was going to happen. Oh, okay, one day in a manger. No, they they didn't know. that. They didn't know Jesus' name, but they would have gotten the picture here. They would have gotten this picture, that there will be this this, uh, battle between Satan and between humanity, and that God would have the victory through his work. So what happens after this promise? I I just want to show you some cool things here. Um, That's number three in your notes, the power of promise. The power of promise. So God gives that promise uh, to the serpent. He he curses him. There will be this enmity. You'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. And then he goes on to uh, curse Adam and Eve, you know, Eve, childbearing will be terrible your husband will rule over you Adam work will now be terrible Um, and all these things but we have the power of promise here as as we continue verse 21 says this and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them So you remember, earlier, they tried to clothe themselves to cover up their sin, to get rid of their shame with fig leaves, and it didn't work. God saw right through it. But here we see God clothing them. And of course, if they're skins—skins isn't made from plants, is it? Skins is is from some sort of an animal. This would be the first recorded death— even uh, in, in scripture, that something had to die, something had to be sacrificed, blood had to be shed in order to cover Adam and Eve, to cover their shame. And that's the picture that we're supposed to get here, is that God, out of his own initiative, would make the sacrifice. That God, oh, oh, out of his own initiative, would, would shed the blood to pay for their sins. That God, out of his own initiative, would cover them with righteousness. Would cover their shame and sinfulness with righteousness. Hebrews 9, explains, it says, uh, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood. So you think about it. Why did there have to be a he, Right? He, uh, you will, you'll bruise his heel and he will crush your head, or I guess it's the opposite of that. Anyways, um, why did there have to be a he? Well, blood needed to be shed. Blood needed to be shed. And so there's this, this promise that I will send one who will shed this blood for you. His heel will be bruised, but ultimately, he will crush sin, Satan, and death for you on your behalf. He will pour out his blood for your sake, cover your sins, and he will cover you with his righteousness. It's a beautiful picture. Again, I'm not sure exactly how much Adam and Eve caught on to what God was doing here as he gives them this promise of, of, of a savior, and then as he makes a sacrifice and covers them, I'm not sure how much they picked up. But we see in the next chapter, and we'll talk about this some next week, that Adam and Eve had taught their children, Cain and Abel, to make sacrifices and offerings to God. Well, that's interesting. Did Cain did, did and Abel just decide one day, you know, I think um, I'm going to kill something and, and give it to God? No. Adam and Eve picked up on something here. Adam and Eve picked up on this covering that was to come, this, this righteousness that would be given to them. I, I believe Adam and Eve were, were saved by, by trusting in what God was going to do. We don't have this exact record that then they went to heaven, you know. But I believe they were by the way that they, they trained their children up in the, the ways of the Lord and, and making these sacrifices and, and teaching them about this, this sacrifice that would be made for them and this covering that, that they would have. Everyone, by the way, up until the time of Jesus, this is what they were trusting in. And we'll see all throughout the Bible this stream that there will be you know someone on, on the, the throne of David, and Isaiah obviously has a bunch, and there are all these prophecies pointing to this Savior, but every one of them was, was looking back to that original promise. There will be someone who defeats Satan's sin and death. And now we, uh, 2,000 years removed from even Jesus coming, living, and dying, and, and rising from the grave, we now look back on the fulfilled promises of God. So that's, that's amazing. But the question is, are we still trusting in that, that fulfilled promise? And are we trusting in the future promises of God? You remember how I said at the beginning, all of our lives we live in, in light of these promises, whether or not we realize it. But you have to know that the Bible tells us that Jesus wants to. He promises that that I will give you abundant life. Don't trust Satan. He's here to to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came so you can have life and life abundantly. Are you trusting in that? That in Jesus is abundant life. Not in in sin, not, not, not in following your flesh, but in Jesus. Are you trusting that you will one day be rewarded for how you live on this earth? Whether you, you lived in obedient faith or disobedient unbelief, you'll be rewarded. Are you trusting that, that one day Satan will be entirely robbed of his, his power and entirely crushed for eternity? You don't have to worry about him. And are you trusting that, that one day you will stand in the presence of God, sins paid for, and entirely covered with the righteousness of the Lamb who has slain, Jesus. This he, this, this Christmas gift. We trust in those things, and we live in light of the promises. That's what makes the difference of a life. That's what it is to have faith, It's to trust in the promises of God. And I understand that it is very likely <clears throat> that some of you have yet to trust in the, these promises. And as this Christmas season rolls in, you're you're much more worried about what what gifts you might get and who's coming in town, and you're thinking about that and all the decorations which are fun and those are fine, but that's all you're worried about. You're you're missing the big picture. You're missing this gigantic gift of God, this promise of a Savior who has now come in the promise of an eternity with him. But you can trust in him today. You can accept that gift that God has given. That he, he did send the he, you know, 2,000 years ago, and he did uh, sacrifice himself, and he did cover us if we will receive that gift. Now, some of you, um, this, is, this may be a lot of us in this boat, we've accepted this gift of promise and seen that it's been fulfilled, but that gift has grown dull Think about a gift you got three years ago. How many gifts from three years ago are you still using? Probably not many. They're, they're either in some drawer at your house, or sitting on some shelf collecting dust, or you know you've thrown it away. Maybe even you know you don't tell the person who bought it for you you threw it away, but you know you did. And um, sometimes it happens with us and God as well. He gives us these amazing gifts. We receive it, we're excited, and then we set it to the side. And I want to ask you this year, this Christmas, as we, we come on this season, to say, no, I'm going I'm to take this gift off the shelf, I'm going to dust it off, and I want to see the beauty of this gift, this gift of, of promise. We look back to this promise fulfilled in Christ, His perfect life, His death on the cross for our sins, His resurrection so that we could have life. And we look forward to the promises that He will fulfill, that we will fulfill you think about the, the usefulness that God says we can have here on earth. Do you believe that? That promise that you can be useful, that he has good works prepared beforehand that you can walk in them? Believe that, and it will change the way you live every single day of your life. Do you believe that you will one day no longer struggle with, with sin, no longer struggle with aches and pains, you'll be glorified in heaven? Do you believe that? Don't, don't waste your time now chasing all these little fleeting pleasures. you believe you will be with the son of glory for eternity, that you have that to look forward to, that hope, that is at the finish line. These things should all drive us. These promises should be the basis for which we live our lives. And as is the case, as if you've um, listened to me preach more than once, you know that what I'm going to tell you is Jesus, looking to Jesus, is the answer here to seeing this gift anew, looking to Jesus. Uh, this promise, uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty, might be 2 Corinthians. Anyway, it says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in him. All these promises will be fulfilled in Jesus. Look to him and trust his promises. I hope that this year, this Christmas, Will not be wasted like so many of my Christmases have been. <laughs> I've spent my time thinking about gifts, thinking about friends, family, and food, and those are all good things. Those are uh, gifts from God. But those gifts are, are worthless. They actually hinder us if they take us away from the true gifts of God. He, he's given them. The question is will you receive them? Will you live in light of these gifts, in this gift of promise that we saw today? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, as we looked back to the beginning of, of creation, God, we see how, how perfectly you made us, how you perfectly provided for us and wanted to commune with us. But then we rebelled against you, God, and we're in the greatest need. And, and each of us who are born under Adam and Eve, we have that same need, God. But then, Lord, we see your compassion. We see your compassion on, on rebels like Adam and Eve and on rebels like us, that you, you stick out your hand, you, you come to us and say, where are you? And God, you ask us to, to confess our sins, you ask us to rely wholly on your mercy and on your grace, just like you did Adam and Eve. And God, we see that through the sacrifice of Jesus, that gift, that we can have the power of promises. We can live in light of the power of this gift of promise. God, let us see that we need not be ashamed, that we are no longer condemned because Jesus is our righteousness if we trust in him. God, let us live our lives in light of the promises stored up for us. God, make our lives count. Make our lives count because we have such great promises awaiting us. God, only you can do this in our hearts. But Lord, would you give us the strength to to choose to seek you, to choose to receive these gifts and, and focus on them and love them until they change us. God, I I pray all these things, trusting in in your Son. Amen. We'll have uh, communion now, and this can be another time for you to reflect on on these promises, on the flesh that was broken for us. is is this very flesh it was talking about in Genesis 3.15, and uh, I hope this communion can be a time to refresh that gift God has given you.